Tate from New Jersey. It's the SNL Nerds, the show where two comics from New Jersey nerd out about Saturday Night Live. I'm your co-host, John Trumbull. And I'm your co-host, Darren Patterson. Darren! How you doing, Jesus. buddy? Jesus Christ, where the heck? What happened there? I'm, I'm coming in hot this week. Did you step on a nail or something? No, no, I'm trying to do, like, high energy. But that that was the highest of energy. Almost apparently, uh, that is not my brand, so I'm going to stop now. So yeah, that was oh god, like, you're like animal from the Muppets. You need okay, to, all right. You're at a ten. Yeah. You're at you're at a ten. I need you at a five. Okay, all right. I learned a lesson here. Um, okay, well, you know, this is how we learn. All right, wow. Now I now I brought down the show. All right, here we yeah. go. <laughs> now we can begin, and uh, we can begin with uh, the fact that hey, we got a guest here with us, good sir. We certainly do, Darren. Yes. Yeah, yes. and like, folks, I—I I mean, we'll get into it, but this, this there's a backstory a, here. <laughs> there's a backstory. It's been a long time coming. We've we've had to had we've we've tried to get this guest on uh, numerous times, and through no fault yeah. of his own, we we've had this guest on. Yeah, it, yeah, we have. Uh, we're introduce him properly, and then we'll get into it. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, this is this, this man needs no inter- introduction, but I'm going to give him one. He's an amazing guy, fantastic guy. He's the he's the Lauren Michaels of the fantastic podcast, the SNL Network, uh, which uh, I've been on and uh, which Trumbull has been on. Ladies and gentlemen, it's our nerd to the north, Mr. John Schneider. Gentlemen, thank you so much for having me on the SNL Nerds. I just, you know, I'm a little bit concerned. Will anybody end up hearing this episode? I don't know if I'm saying things into oblivion or uh, this will be sent out to the masses. I don't know if I could trust you guys. Uh, don't, don't jinx it, man. Don't jinx it. I mean, <laughs> it's you're on, so it's kind of a crapshoot, honestly. Um, yeah, for, third time's the charm, right? <laughs> third oh boy. Time's the char- we we had John on. We actually recorded an episode with John once before, and it was episode one twenty two of this podcast. And it is the one episode that we recorded that we were not able to release. Uh, yeah, like we 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 were having issues on my end with my laptop, and then yeah, I think there were issues with the. Uh, the uh, the program we were using, and then like yeah. I think at one point I actually drove down to the studio to record. And oh, that's we, right. I, got, I, I mean, sort of have a theory, guys, about this, by the way, which is that uh, the podcast couldn't handle three Johns because there was John Schneider, John Trumbull, and then John John Krasinski, which uh, who we were covering for that particular episode. Yeah, it was too many cool. Johns. The universe couldn't handle it, so that episode is lost to time. You're right. You're right. We went over our John threshold. Um, we went full John. I mean, yeah, you never go full John. I mean, there's there's me on this podcast, and right there, that's a lot. Um, there is yeah. there is more John Trumbull on this podcast than I am, quite frankly, comfortable with. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sure many of our audience members would agree and sign off on that. And then, uh, and then we have you, and then we're talking about John Krasinski on top of that. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of Johns. Yeah, the math checked out. Yeah. Yeah, and then we also did try and talk about Mr. Mayor, but that show has since been canceled, so sorry about that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right. And then the day we were supposed to record, we, we set a time to record on that day, and uh, I took a nap that afternoon, and I slept through the record time. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, that explains yeah. that. Yes, we 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 run a tight ship here at the. SNL we really Nerds. do. 
consummate, consummate professionals. That's us. And so, like, at least once a month since the debacle of of episode one twenty two, um, Darren and I say to each other, "It's like we got to figure out a way to get John back on because we we felt so bad that this happened on an episode where we had a guest." Yeah, like yeah, Schneider, you were like becoming the uh, Lindsey Buckingham of our "What's Up with That" show. You, you, really, you really were. <laughs> yeah, and and that's okay. I mean, uh, I'm always a big fan of Bill Hader as Lindsey Buckingham, so that's yeah. fine. It could be the running joke, but hopefully, we get to talk about Kids in the Hall properly today because I do have a lot of thoughts on this documentary. Yeah, okay. we're this week we are watching the new documentary. All about uh, Kids in the Hall, Comedy Punks. Uh, this came out just this year uh, in 2022, if you're listening to this in the future. And hi, listening future <laughs> listeners. Um, this is uh, streaming on Amazon Prime right now. It's a quick watch. Uh, two episodes, 48 minutes apiece. Uh, we've all watched it. We're going to talk about it. Yeah, and we're going to talk about yeah, yeah, well, we'll talk about the SNL Connections in it as well uh but, but before yeah. we do that like we do all our guests uh john schneider we gotta ask you uh well we already know you're an snl nerd you have a whole mm-hmm. network dedicated to it but uh yeah. let's get into it let's talk about your history with the show how you discovered it uh you know was it what hooked you onto it was it a cast member was it a sketch uh just tell us all about your snl origin story good sir well, I was in high school, I'd say even earlier, but I, I caught some SNL even you know before high school, and I always thought it was interesting and intriguing. I'd always been very fascinated with pop culture, celebrity culture. Um, for me, you know, growing up in, in Montreal and Canada, we had, you know, we have certain things, obviously people, it's a big, you know, city, we had people come up for concerts and, but I have a very Americanized family. I was always interested in American culture and something about SNL I was really drawn to. And then when I got to high school, I don't know what just, you know, clicked at the time, but I think uh, I was at the perfect age where we were going in to high school right at the beginning of this, what I like to call this third golden era with all these incredible cast members like, you know, Fred Armisen, Andy Samberg, Bill Hader, Kristen Wiig, Jason Sudeikis, like that whole crew um, really was getting their start. And every single week I would go in to school, we would be talking like at the lockers about the sketches on SNL the previous week. And it wasn't even just something that I, you know, initiated. It was random other classmates and uh, people talking about the digital shorts. We ended up, Mm. you know, having video projects where we would recreate these digital shorts and, you know, those (laughs) exist somewhere on the internet. So for me, it was just such a big part of, of me growing up and, I guess eventually, you know, like a lot of people, they kind of grow out of the show a little bit once they stop, uh, once they start going out and living their adult lives and, you know, not necessarily, you know, hanging out with the same friends every single weekend or whatever it is. And um, I got to the 40th anniversary of the show, uh, fell in love with the, you know, occasion, and I was watching everything. And I just said, I have to go back and get full context for everything that's happening that evening. Went back to 1975, took a couple of years of watching all of the seasons of the show, took incredible, you know, detailed notes about everything. And I had no idea what I was going to do with them, but I ended up creating a Twitter account called SNL Stats. And uh, yeah, uh, basically people in the community, uh, you guys were interacting with it. We ended up posting some fun statistics about things were happening at the show. Uh, mm-hmm. Eventually, was encouraged to start the SNL network, and uh, long story short, it you know has grown and grown. And uh, fortunately, we get to talk Saturday Night Live 
uh, every single week about the new episodes and get to speak to wonderful people like the both of you and all the incredible diverse people in our community who just love Saturday Night Live. Uh, I'm very blessed to get to host these shows and talk about everything to do with the show. Wow. That's fantastic, man. That That is great. You've, you've turned your OCD into a <laughs> sideline. That's, I mean, that's the dream. Bravo. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I think, uh, I think for me, it was just, um, you know, I, I'm the type of person that when I really love something, I just become utterly obsessed with it. And mm-hmm. I think that like, we'll talk about that in the documentary, but I feel like that's sort of like what the kids in the hall were like as well. Um, yeah. So I could certainly relate to what I saw there. But uh, yeah, I think just uh, getting to talk about SNL. I mean, I don't know, you know, we're continuing to grow over there. And who knows what the SNL network will be in years to come, because, you know, we keep having all these fun ideas and we keep trying things. But um, for me, just getting the opportunity to talk about a show that I love uh, and podcast about it, uh, which I think I'm okay at, <laughs> um, is is really fun. And uh, I'm just very thankful that everyone's been like so kind to us and welcoming um, and enjoying our coverage for the most part. Yeah, that's that's great. And I mean, it's it's amazing. I see like you'll you'll tweet out stats like, you know, this is the seventh time they've done this character on the show. And I'm just like, this is all the sort of stuff that only vaguely stays in my head. Yeah. <laughs> and, right. and so what I, I see you have like this vast system where you've you've figured out all this stuff. I, I am just amazed by that. That that is incredible. Yeah, I mean, well, the craziest thing, John, is that like we were doing uh, sketch counts for every single person who's ever been on the show. And that was something that I hadn't necessarily seen published anywhere. So we caught that Keenan was really close to his 1500 sketch this season, posted it. It got like a ton of press coverage. And then they ended up celebrating Keenan's 1500 sketch, which it sort of like became like national news. uh, The fact that SNL was celebrating that that evening. Um, and it really kind of like built, uh, it, it made me feel more confident in sort of mm-hmm. the things that we were doing because people are actually interested in looking at this 50 year, almost 50 year institution and mm-hmm. looking at it like, um, like it really should be, which is like everything should be archived and taken seriously. And yeah, you could look at it, an individual sketch, in my opinion, and evaluate the sketch on its own, which we certainly do. And I know you guys do a great job of that as well over here, but you know, everything uh, to me that they do on the show is going to be looked back at the same way I looked at something in 1975. I was, you know, not, wasn't going to be born for another, you know, almost 20 years, but I look back at it and it's, you know, still there in time, everything that happens now in 2022, there's going to be kids who are not born yet are going to go back and look at it. And I always like to look at SNL today and say, what is it going to mean to future generations down the road? Mm. Wow. Wow. That's, I mean, you, you were, you were taking the long view. Sir. <laughs> yeah. Well, well said, sir. Well said. Uh, yeah, I mean, I remember when um, you posted up about how this, there would be Keenan's uh, 150th. Uh, 1500th. Yeah. 1500th, sorry. 1500th uh, yeah. episode. See, this is why we're not in the numbers, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't write it down. I didn't write it down. No. But, like, but like, yeah, I remember you you tweeted that, that out. And then I remember like a day or two later, I think like I saw like my local news talk about it or like it it was it, it was like it did make a, a bit of a bit of a bit a bit of noise there and i was like oh wow look at mm. look at josh snyder doing things all right That's yeah cool. I, I remember 
the hullabaloo about that, and I didn't realize that it originated with you. I just assumed that somehow the show had been keeping track of that. But it, it actually makes so much more sense that one of the fans had to point that out. So that's that's really yeah. cool. That's wonderful. Well, according to our friends at NBC, who I do get to talk to every now and then, they do claim that they verify some of the stats that we put out there. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, you never know. <laughs> I mean, I, I sort of feel well, that uh, that... You know, we're like, I, I don't know if they have a stats department that does check everything that goes that we put out. But it seems like for the most part, there's nobody uh, saying, oh, no, you guys are wrong about uh, how many times this person said live from New York or um, right. how many sketches this person's been in. I think for the most part, we're trusted as a source for that type of information. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you do the job well. Um, you actually we had a little taste of that this week, actually, because last week we did our big season 47 in review show with uh, Dennis Perkins of Pace Magazine, formerly of the AV Club. And we did a thing that I do at the end of every season where I look at the Wikipedia profile pictures of all the cast members, and I basically rate and review them. And and uh, earlier this week, I posted all those pictures because it's good to have that visual component. I posted those on our Twitter account at, at SNL Nerds Show. And one of the ones I pointed out was... It was not all that it could be was was Cecily Strong's because it was like a picture of her at the White House correspondence dinner, I think. And she's like mid blink. So not an attractive <laughs> photo of her. And our friends at the standby line, uh, another SNL podcast and a very popular Twitter account, uh, they said, yeah, we went ahead and changed that. <laughs> and so they have a much more flattering picture of Cecily Strong up on her Wikipedia page now. And so we helped make that happen. You're welcome, America. Yay, Yay we did it. So <laughs> nice, nice. So, so yeah, uh, I do like the bit. I will say, I like, I like <laughs> the bit of reviewing the uh, Wikipedia pictures. Thank you, thank you. I'm very proud of it, and uh, I honestly don't care if no one else is has my degree of interest in it. But <laughs> it amuses me. So I'm indifferent at best. Exactly. Exactly. I am going to subject everyone to this during the season end in review show. It is just a thing I do because it makes me happy. Yes. And I am humoring him. Exactly. Um, So, well, um, since we're talking all about this doc about uh, the kids in the hall, let's let's all go around. Let's talk about were we fans of the kids in the hall? Did you watch the show? Are you familiar with the show? What's your history there? Um, I'll start off. Um, I I mean, I am a fan of the show, like because I remember, you know, back in the late '80s, early '90s, I was just a bit, I was just a really big fan of sketch comedy in general, like uh, mm-hmm. in Living Color, SNL, uh, Kids in the Hall, and of course, you know, or even Monty Python. I remember watching Monty Python with my dad, like back when it came on Channel Thirteen or Twenty One. Uh, back in the day, and you know, of course, later on, I'd be a big fan of like things um, like the State and Mr. Show and whatnot. So I was just a big fan mm-hmm. of comedy in general. I think I don't remember if I discovered it on Comedy Central or HBO, but I remember like seeing a lot of like sketches where I was like, I it was like they were kind of weird and different, like the um like the Scora sketch, the one about the uh, the the shark. That uh, like attacked you know all the people in this little sea town, and then it ended up attacking Dave Foley as he was like a like a manager behind in a hotel, and the score attacked him from behind the desk or something like. That. There was like mm-hmm. a whole 
sketch was like, wow, that's that's kind of weird, but kind of funny and like really different. Like I, I I think I realized from an early age that they were kind of a lot more edgier than what SNL was doing, I guess, at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was definitely a fan of the, the show back in the day. John Schneider, what about you? So for me, I've since come to appreciate the kids in the hall a lot more and have checked out a lot of the sketches and really do enjoy them. I think at one point in the documentary, they say that the kids in the hall were everyday life, whereas SNL was more pop culture based. Mm -hmm, right. And I think when I was younger, uh, I didn't gravitate towards sketch shows like kids in the hall because it sort of reminded me of, you know, like when I, when I was younger, my dad always used to watch the Canadian football league, the CFL. And I was like, why are you watching this? Like there was a Montreal team. That's where I'm from. And uh, he'd be like, well, they're a local team or whatever. And I was like, yeah, but this is not like, it's not like the real, it's not like the NFL. Like, you know, it's not, the, <laughs> it's not like the majors. And, right. um, you know, we do joke about the, uh, the SNL being like the triple A of comedy and that you go towards movies and TV shows, which are more like the majors. But really it was like SNL is the pop culture uh, thing where you want to be. And, you know, you even see at, at certain points where, you know, Mark and Bruce, they end up getting jobs at SNL as writers. And that's like kind of like the next step up. So for me, when I was younger, I sort of looked at Kids in the Hall as like, you know, uh, not not really. It wasn't meant for me because I always wanted to look at that pop culture high. Like, what are people talking about? And I, I since have come back to it. And especially when you watch this documentary, you realize like how important uh, they were to sketch comedy and why they should be appreciated. And I feel like uh, a lot of younger people like me wouldn't understand kids in the hall the way that they would now, like as maybe a more mature person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. A for, for me, I was, I was much more hit and miss on them. I was, I would say I was a moderate kids in the hall fan at best. I was, I didn't, we didn't have HBO in my household at, when I was a kid. Um, I would only get to see HBO like twice a year when I would go visit my dad in the summer or then the week between Christmas and New Year's. And that's when I would see HBO. And I don't remember ever watching Kids in the Hall uh, during that because by the time they were on, I was I was in my late teens and early 20s. So uh it wasn't so much a thing. I was, um, so I didn't, I didn't really watch much kids in the hall until they were rerunning the shows on comedy central a little later on in the nineties. And, but I became a huge, huge fan of news radio. And I became a fan of Dave Foley's through that way. And I uh, actually met Dave Foley once. Darren, have I told the story on the podcast before about how I met Dave Foley? I cannot remember. I think, I know you told me it, but I forget if it was on the podcast or not. I don't know if that was in on the podcast or uh, IRL, as the kids say. Yeah, but, I can't. We've been doing this podcast long enough. I cannot remember which stories I've told on the podcast and which I haven't. Shall I run through it quickly, I guess? Yeah, go for it. Okay, okay. So um, my friend uh, uh, Frankie Vitarello, huge, huge fan of Kids in the Hall and Comedy Central. Frankie... Uh, who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, he was he was cooler than me, basically. Um, and so he got me into a lot of things that I would not have gotten into otherwise. Um, and it's it's always nice to have a friend that is cooler than you and a little hipper than you. Um, and so 
I became like a bit of a Kids in Hall fan through him. I certainly became a fan of the state through him. And uh, back in 2001, we were out celebrating uh, his birthday at uh, this cool club called Maxwell's in Hoboken. And if you're on East Coast of the United States, you probably know about it. Um, and it, it was one of our favorite places to hang out. We'd go there and see cool bands and stuff. One week we were there and we were celebrating Frankie's birthday. Uh, and we were seeing Elvez, who is the Mexican Elvis. And that was his his whole bit. He would, he would dress up like Elvis Presley, but he was uh, Hispanic. <laughs> and so... Uh, and... It turns out that Dave Foley was dating one of his backup singers, and she actually became his second wife. And we were waiting to go in to the back room where the band would play, and we were waiting there with Dave Foley. We'd spotted Dave Foley just kind of hanging out earlier in the evening. We didn't approach him, uh, but we're hanging out, and then we get to chatting with him. And... After we talked to him, like a few minutes, maybe exchanged a few words, he he introduced himself to us. He, he said, oh, hi, I, I should introduce myself. Hi, I'm Dave. And Ooh. I just, I was so touched by it because it was so wonderfully Canadian that he Ooh. did not immediately assume we knew who he was. <laughs> Love it. And, and we were just like, yeah, we know who you are. Um, and uh, this actually was in 2001 and this was mid-september so this is right after september 11th we're we're talking like less than a week wow um so after the show uh our circle of friends we we end up talking to dave foley some more after the show and he could not be the nicest guy and because 9-11 had just happened naturally the conversation turns to that and it was still in that weird area of like, what is this? Where were you? What does this all mean? Do you rebuild? Should you rebuild? How do you rebuild? And, and all this. And so at the end of the night, we'd have this wonderful conversation with Dave Foley. And at the end of the night, he like hugs us all. He was like, Oh, let me give you, you guys. And we walked out of the club and I just turned to Frank and I said, if you had told me when I woke up this morning that I would have been hugged by Dave Foley before the day was out, I would not have believed you. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I'm glad he was representing the Canadians very well. He was. He was. He was. I mean, if if anyone says a bad word about Dave Foley in my presence, I will say you are a stinking liar because I have met him. I have had a wonderful conversation with him. I, I've just met him the one time. I'm not saying I'm friends with him, but he was. he could not have been nicer. He, he was lovely. Wow, that sounds like the time I met uh, Henry Winkler years ago, and like he yeah. was like super, he was like super nice. Like if anybody says a bad word about Henry Winkler, my presence, I will I will defend him to the death. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's it's so nice when you meet someone who you're a fan of and you you like their work, and then they turn out to be a nice person as well. It's it's just so lovely. It's it's one of the nicest things that can happen. That's like me with you guys. Aww. Aww. <laughs> that's so sweet. Neither. Yeah, that's, that's my Canadian uh, input for the day. Aww. Yeah, there, there you go. That's, yeah, I, th- that was a thing. When I was watching this documentary, I was just like, I really like Canadians. They just seem so sane and they're so... They've got a great sense of humor, but they, they just seem so 
sane and even keeled and mild mannered more often than not. And it's just like, they just seem so much better than us. <laughs> Americans, <laughs> that is. Yeah, there's a, I, there's a lot of reasons, but I probably mm-hmm. shouldn't get into them on this podcast. Oh. A lot of theories. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, well, we'll get into that in our you know, American versus Canadian spinoff podcast that will be happening 100%. later this summer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so that's kind of where we all stand with the kids in the hall. Um, let's let's get into it. Let's let's talk about the this uh, documentary, Kids in the Hall, Comedy Punks. Uh, let's so, do it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. A lot, a lot to digest in this thing. Like, yeah. um, I liked how they, you know, of course, you got to start off with how they met. And they talk about mm-hmm. how they met doing improv. Uh, yeah. Bruce and Mark met uh, in Calgary in 81 during uh, something, doing something called Fear Sports. And then they also right. talked about how Kevin and Dave met in Toronto doing theater sports improv. Right, and they were they were they were literally paired together on, in a warm up game where they're doing like the mirror game where you have to like mirror each other's gestures and stuff. And they both they just hit it off that quickly. And by the end of that session, uh, I think it was Kevin said to Dave, or or maybe it was the other way around. I didn't I didn't write that down. I was like, do you want to join my my improv troupe? And the other one said yes. And they'd known each other for maybe an hour and a half. Yeah, that's just. Yeah, I, I think you got it right. I think it was Kevin asked Dave to join his troop. Yeah, yeah, and then I think Kevin said he didn't even he didn't even have an improv group. So as soon right. as Dave, so as soon as Dave says yet, he was like, "Oh, I gotta get together an improv group." <laughs> I love uh, that. That that is wonderful. Guys, uh, could we talk about how the Loose Moose Theater is the most Canadian name for a theater ever? That is that is <laughs> an extremely Canadian name, the Loose Moose Theater. Oh, this I just folks, I, I I couldn't believe my I was just like oh my gosh uh, this is the crazy uh, it's the most Canadian thing I've ever heard in my life yeah I'm about to call it like the maple syrup bottle or something yeah <laughs> the maple syrup stage you know, <laughs> maple syrup. <laughs> you know I mean it, the moose and mountie is the only more Canadian <laughs> yeah maple syrup I don't have mountie. a pet moose by the way for any listeners who are wondering oh yeah oh. um. But but they talked about and and then eventually these two groups these two pairs got together. You had uh, Dave and Kevin as the kids in the hall, and then you had Bruce and uh, McCullough and Mark McKinney who were appearing, and they called themselves the audience. And they yeah. they came together and they flipped a coin to decide on what their name was going to be, and kids in the hall won. And Mark McKinney like hated that name. He was like, "Well, that's a good placeholder name." Yeah, I mean the audience is a pretty good name for a group. I'll admit that. It, I, I think it's a very good name. Yeah. Um, so if you had to pick, it just between... sounds. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, John. Go. Well, I was just going to say it just sounds strange uh, to us because we're so used to hearing kids in the hall, so anything else sounds weird. Definitely. John, what if were you, you going to say? I was going to say if you guys had to pick between uh, Mark and Bruce or Dave and Kevin, who are you picking? Ooh. I would go with, I'm going with Dave and Kevin. I think they're more in line with my comedic sensibilities. That's, that's really tough. I mean, watching, watching this doc, I was thinking like, I think I relate to Mark McKinney's manner and point of view the most out of the group, but 
I, I will always love Dave Foley from what he's done on Kids in the Hall and News Radio. And he and Kevin have a great chemistry. And my, I think my favorite Kids in the Hall sketches are Dave and Kevin sketches. The Citizen Kane sketch and the Who's on First sketch. I think both of those are just absolutely brilliant. Right. Absolutely. I mean, they talk about it in the doc, like how uh, yeah. uh, Dave and Kevin have like sort of like a vaudeville type of vibe about them when they get into sketches yeah. and they, they even say like out of all the kids the two of them have the best like chemistry when it comes to sketches and i I'd right. agree and it, re- it reminded me a bit of monty python in that way in that uh you had those those pairs within the group you had in monty python you had john cleese and graham chapman who wrote together and then you had uh yeah. Michael Palin and Terry Jones, who they were a team. And then Eric Idle more or less did stuff by himself and, and Terry Gilliam more or less did stuff by himself. So, and with kids in the hall, you had these two pairs and then Scott Thompson comes in and he just started out as like a super fan at their live shows, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Like they basically said that like the two, the four of them got together and uh, Scott even says, yeah, I was trying to be like a serious actor, like a James Dean type. But then I saw mm-hmm. them doing sketch comedy at the uh, the Rivoli. They were, they started off doing uh, sketch comedy at this place called the Rivoli on Queen Street. And when right. Scott saw them, he was like, "No, I got to be part of this. These like these guys are awesome." And I think they even talk about how they met Scott doing uh, this one sketch that went horribly. It was like a murder mystery thing, but at the uh, they, they, at the end of not the end of it, but like they had they went around and before the show and taped jelly donuts underneath everybody's chair yeah I'm, I'm i'm still trying to understand how, what the i don't know but yeah but like, you get so, a jelly donut you get a jelly donut you get a yeah yeah but you're it's both very, stand-up comics so if uh you were performing on stage and somebody threw a jelly donut at you what would you do Ooh, uh if i hadn't eaten lunch that day i mean yeah you know free meal that's all i'm saying in in the moment i would hate it and i might be a little pissed i mean it would depend on if the jelly donut hit me or not um but i think before the end of the evening i would be like well hey i got a great story out of it yeah how pissed do you think that the other people who were throwing the jelly donuts at the kids in the hall uh were that they didn't get that fifth spot and somehow scott was the one who got it Like imagine oh, yeah. for like for 30 years, you're just thinking to yourself, like, oh, I God. also threw a jelly donut at those four guys yeah. and they didn't pick me. The, the thing I was wondering with the jelly donut story is like, well, how long can that last? Because if there's only one donut per seat and then everyone throws a donut at roughly the same time, that's over in seconds. They're making yeah. it sound like it last, they were pelted with jelly donuts for several minutes. but um, And we're missing something, by the way, because you, you guys know, like when you're on stage, you got the bright lights in your face. You can't you can yeah. sort of see the audience, but you can't fully see them. So how did True. they know that Scott was the one who threw a jelly donut at, or specifically how did he as one of the people who mm. threw the jelly donuts get chosen? We're missing some context to this jelly donut story. Well, I mean, it. It didn't seem like the biggest club in the world. I mean, so you can see the audience a little bit in those circumstances, I guess. Yeah, fair enough. Absolutely. And I mean, as far as people who wish they threw that jelly donut, I mean, they get into it in the dock. Um, One of those people who I'm sure wished they threw the jelly donut and got that fifth slot, uh, SNL's own uh, Mike Myers. Yeah. uh, did some improv with them. And like he, he apparently the kids in the hall knew him back in the day. And like, 
Mike mm-hmm. Myers was a huge fan of theirs. It was like, yeah, I really wanted to be in this group. They were like doing like they were like rock gods to me. They were like doing such different stuff. Yeah, it was it was fascinating to hear Mike Myers just waxing rhapsodic about the kids in the hall and how meaningful they were to him and how much he would have loved to have been a part of the group. And then you just know that literally like a year or two later, uh, Mike Myers is on SNL, but you get the feeling like if he'd had his choice, he would have totally chosen to be in the kids in the hall instead. I think he did. Okay. Though he did did all right for himself. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) yeah. I mean, I do kind of wonder how that other uh, group would have looked with Mike Myers in it instead of Scott, potentially, and yeah. where Mike Myers' career would have gone. I don't know that we would have gotten uh, Austin Powers. I don't know that we would have yeah, gotten no. Shrek. So We wouldn't uh, have gotten yeah. uh, the Pentaveret, and that's a yes. big loss to everybody. Yeah. An all-time classic. <laughs> which which John was telling us before we started recording, and it's like, no, no, you guys, you guys have to cover it. <laughs> I've been on the fence about it, but... Yeah. John's like, no, no, you have to watch it. <laughs> Even if you I don't mean, like it, you have to watch it and you have to do it. <laughs> I felt like I needed a bath every two seconds since I've watched that show. So you guys got to watch it and talk about it. Oh, dear God. Well, there's a recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that, that should go right on the DVD box. That's a great, glowing um, review. You know, but but they talk about how they, they kind of built this audience. And, and Darren, like what you were saying before where where Dave and Kevin had that vaudeville sensibility, it was very much a vaudeville sort of thing where they're they're just constantly performing for next to no money in these clubs where you get 10, 15, 20 people seeing you. And, you know, a really big night is when you have 35 people in the audience. But then they slowly build through word of mouth and... And they they basically had a place to be good where they work, or a place to be bad where they work towards being good. And then they get so good that when SNL comes to town to go to Second City to scout for talent, they're hearing all this buzz about kids in the hall, and there was this very nice review in the paper. And so the SNL people were like, "Okay, well, we guess we better go see them." And they call up the group. Bruce McCullough answers and then he says, Oh yeah, sorry, the show's sold out. You'll have to see if you can scalp tickets. <laughs> sorry, Lawrence. That's, yeah, that's pretty epic. I I don't think I've ever heard of another story of somebody declining Lauren Michaels' call before. I think that's that's once in a lifetime type of thing. That's epic. And I don't I wasn't quite clear if that was like him being like punk rock or if it's just him being like Oh, sorry. There's no way we can comp your ticket. I don't know how ironic he was being there, or I think it's a little bit of each. Yeah, maybe, maybe. He's, I mean, it. He's tough to read. So yeah, he is. Bruce is a tough nut to crack. Also, I find the timing super fascinating, right? Because you have to think yeah. about what was happening at SNL at the time. This was probably immediately after the Billy Crystal. Um, Christopher Guest year at Saturday Night Live. Right. So D- Dave Ebersol is out. Uh, Lorne Michaels decides to come back in and he's trying to build this, you know, new show that uh, he ends up bringing in all these, uh, you know, somewhat movie stars, even with mm-hmm. you know Robert Downey Jr., Anthony Michael Hall. And then he, you know, brings on two of the guys from Kids in the Hall as writers. And for me, yeah. I just find it fascinating to think about the context in which this was taking place because Lorne is pulling out all the stops to try and get this mix of star power 
into this SNL season and it's a season that's notorious for not really working. So mm-hmm. it's, it's mm-hmm. really cool to see from a different perspective of this is the uh, prologue to a very uh, notorious season of SNL. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, this happened like around 1985, 1986. So yeah, that would be just as around the time Ebersol left and Lorne Michaels was getting back into uh, SNL right. and kind of building the show from the ground up again. Yeah. And, and by the way, I just, I have to note, because if we don't talk about this, I'm going to kick myself. When they first talk about Lorne Michaels coming in to the Kids in the Hall story, they show clips of young Lorne Michaels as a comedy performer in Canada. Uh, in Canada. <laughs> Get it together, Trouble. <laughs> John, in your country, Canada. Um, <laughs> Canadia. Yeah. As as a young Canadian performer, it was a uh, Lauren and what was who was the other fellow's name that he did the show with? Uh, Hart it was, it was, Hart Pomerantz. Okay, so so it was classic Canadian name. The, the, <laughs> the terrific comedy hour, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. And we see young mustachioed Lauren Michaels, and whenever I see footage or photos of the young Lauren Michaels with the long hair and the big Sonny Bono mustache. I cannot get enough of this. I, I got to this point in the doc this morning and I immediately texted Darren in all caps, mustachioed Lord Michaels. Yeah. It's yeah. what we call porn Michaels. Porn <laughs> Michael. Nice. Love it. love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Using it. Boom. Adapting it. <laughs> well, well played Schneider. Well played. Yeah. Can I, can I give you guys also a gripe of mine when I was watching this documentary and they were doing this okay. not to be like super nitpicky, but they're yeah. basically going, uh, so we get to the part where Bruce and Mark are chosen as SNL writers and they're talking about their time being there in the mid eighties and uh, going through this tumultuous season. And they start showing clips of Alec Baldwin being preparing for a show who mm. was not at SNL until 1990. <laughs> so mm. I was like, Oh, get it right. This documentary is built on a lie. <laughs> wow, Sorry, I didn't even know. It, it drove me nuts. No, no, I didn't I, even notice I, that. Yeah, I think they were probably just, we need some behind the scenes footage of SNL, and that was the closest to the right era they could find. So right. I'll forgive them that. But I, I, I totally get where you're coming from. Um, so, yeah, so, so Bruce and Mark go off to write to SNL, and of course they move to New York City. To do that, I had no idea that two of them had been hired to write for SNL. I knew that Mark McKinney had been a cast member in the mid '90s, but I had no idea he'd written for the show before that. That's that oh. was new to me. That and... was yeah, yeah. Because like I think when uh, Lauren actually did, and the rest of the SNL guys actually did see the kids perform, he said, "Yeah, you guys are." I think his from what I wrote down, his words were, "Yeah, you guys are really funny, but what are we going to do with five of you?" And yeah. that, that caused a little tension in between in between the group, which uh, right, and that's and, and there have to be like so many situations in comedy where you you have a group from from the Second City or the Groundlings or or whatever or UCB, and then SNL comes scouting and they're like, we'll take this person and this person and this person and. Mm. And you will be a writer, and and then, <laughs> and then that group just kind of blows up because you can't really continue on with it. You know, it's it's just like in the movie. Don't think twice. Ooh, solid movie. Well, 
also, if you do watch SNL season 11, uh, Mark McKinney's in, I think it's 11 appearances or 12 appearances in that season. So he pops mm. up as an extra in a bunch of sketches um, oh, wow. as a writer. So you can see like a young Mark McKinney in season 11. And then I think that Bruce McCullough cool. did did a couple of pre-tapes as well throughout his time at the show because he wrote for. Well, I mean, a couple that makes sense because they they often utilize writers and crew members to play bit parts in sketches. So it's not too surprising that they did that. I don't revisit season eleven a lot because that was like just before I started watching the show on a regular basis. So right, yeah, I'm the same way. Um, but yeah, yeah. So Mark and Bruce get hired to be on to be writers on SNL. Uh, the rest of the group are like, well, I guess that's it for us. I guess we're done. Mm -hmm. Uh, so like their future is very up in the air, uh, cut to Mark and Bruce writing on the show and they totally hate it. They hate the fact that like SNL is this kind of big machine that they really couldn't, you know, get a foothold in and they had to fight to get their sketches on. And like, Mm -hmm. according to Bruce, like I think Bruce and Mark described it as being uh, exhausting uh, agonizing, overwhelming, torturous, and ab- just absolutely no fun. Yeah. Which is, you know, a lot of people find that about SNL. It's, uh, well, it's, uh, it's worse. And also, SNL was going through a bad year. I don't think anybody connected with the show would point to that year and be like, yeah, that was that was a great season. Uh, so <laughs> that had to make it tougher. That's true, too. And then I think, um, so I think like around 87, I think they left the, they left the show. But like, it, like while they were writers, they would always go back to uh, Canada and, and do uh, mm-hmm. sketch shows with the kids in the hall. So like, even though they left the group, they were still, they still considered some part of the group and they were always able to like do the sketches they wanted to do. So they, they, they sort of had a bigger appreciation of the group uh, once they were on SNLs. And like, I think once they left, Lauren Michaels kind of realized, Oh wait, no, the five of these guys need to stay together. This is where the magic is. And um, right. then, so then, Lauren flew them all out to New York City to work on a one-hour pilot and, um, you know, told them to go out to shows, you know, sort of toughen up their act, tighten it up, make it, you know, right for American audiences. And that's when they started working on their one-hour pilot. Uh, At one point in the doc, we see uh, Louis Black uh, getting interviewed. And, like, Louis was like, oh, yeah, I used to run a room back uh, in New York City back in the day called the West Bank Cafe Downstairs Theater Bar. And like I would have the kids on, and they were really fantastic. And like, you know, the the audiences some sometimes they liked them, sometimes they didn't. But like, I was a big champion of them. Which what was what, a, what was the Lewis Black uh, quote? I wrote it down, but I'm not sure if I got it right. And he said that's a group of comedy fuckballs. Yeah, or goofballs. He was like, he was like, yeah, yeah these, these guys are weird, but they're really, yeah. <laughs> they're, but they're really funny. Which I, I I'd sign off on that. That that, that tracks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting when they said that they felt that the reason why the kids in the hall worked at that time was because nobody looked dangerous, but yeah. you could tell that they were very smart. And I think that they, there they was were something, always... yeah, I was going to say that I think there was something like, uh, kind of like, you know, the, the fact that they look so innocent on the outside, but then their sketches were so mm-hmm. like off brand from their look. Yeah. Yeah. Was I think the magic of what made it work at the time. Yeah, they had that subversive quality. I mean, they were all kids from the Canadian suburbs. Uh, and they also talk about how they all had, apparently all had alcoholic fathers. Uh, and yeah. so they, they they developed their senses of humor and stuff as coping mechanisms for dealing with that. 
Yeah, and, yeah. I think uh, like Kevin and Dave definitely talked about how their they had yeah. both their fathers had alcohol issues. They, and there was even a sketch they brought up about you know Daddy drank, and yeah. like a lot of the stuff that Dave Foley says in that sketch is Kevin's like, yeah, my dad actually said that to me. Yeah, which is, which is wow. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like every time I watch a documentary. And I find out like, oh, yeah, this outrageous thing came from this real place. It always blows my mind. But it is so true. Everyone is really writing about themselves. Even when they don't think they are, they are writing about themselves. Right. And uh, I mean, I think another thing that like really made them stand out from other sketch comedy groups was like it was two things. For one thing, uh, they had Scott in the group who is, you know, the gay man. And they would mm-hmm. ha- have his voice in a lot of the sketches. And I guess in sketch comedy at the time, you'd rarely see that like you know a proud gay man talking making you know jokes and having sketches revolve around being gay so that's one thing that separated them and um the second thing is that a lot of time in the sketches they would play women but like uh, Mm -hmm. i also liked how they um, made a note to really point out in the doc that like the joke was never oh it's a man playing a woman that's funny but like the woman that they were playing was always like a part of the sketch in a way. Like the joke right. wasn't, Oh dude in a dress. Ha ha. It was, it was like, they made the, the character of a woman, like a more, like a realized fleshed out person. And it they, was they wouldn't, the they wouldn't be caricatures. They would, I mean, and I mean, even in the costuming, in the wigs and the dresses, they were just basically just passing as everyday women. Um, if you yeah. didn't look that closely, especially when Dave Foley was in drag. You would just think, yeah. oh, that's a, that's a, pr- a nice, pretty-looking woman. Yeah, and they I, actually talk in the, in the doc about how Dave Foley was the prettiest woman out of the bunch. Yeah. They even, they even say in the doc how, like, uh, when they were shooting their show, like, one of the crew members, like, had a crush on Dave in, 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 uh, in drag, which I was like, yeah, that, that tracks, too. I mean, the, the, yeah, Dave, Dave's hot. I'll say it. Yeah. <laughs> what I found really fascinating also to think about when it comes to kids in the hall and why they worked so well, I think there is a comparison to be made from the original cast of SNL in the seventies, where we always talk about how they clicked because they were rebellious. They were doing things on television that nobody else was doing. They were making fun of the president. They were, you know, uh, you know, shaping how the public, the public perception on these like major political or pop culture issues. And, that was something that was so new and fresh in the 70s. And I think that SNL lost its way with that mm. somewhat during the Ebersol era and then into the mm-hmm. beginning, you know, of the Lauren Michaels thing before really the, you know, Dana Carvey and Kevin Nealon and Phil Hartman and Chan Hooks, like that era started to really like pick up and become this next great thing. But I think there was a need at the time in the mid to late 80s for a sketch troupe to come out and be the rebels of their time. And I think that yes. this generation was looking for a rebellious sketch troupe. And that was them. You know, nowadays, we, we you know in modern pop culture, we wouldn't blink at, you know, a guy dressing like a girl or the gay tropes that we saw played out in some of their sketches. But at the time, mm-hmm. it was seen as extremely rebellious. And I think it was something that sketch uh, comedy fans were looking for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that uh, that is the point in history when SNL had probably crossed over to being an establishment show. And because you can't be the, the rebellious young show forever and like certainly not in your 10th or 11th season. So 
the time was right for a new show to come. And I think Lauren was savvy enough to, to recognize that. And, and he was also smart enough to realize, oh yeah, we shouldn't break up this group and we should let them be their own thing. So he, he produced the show. They produced the pilot. They, they taped this pilot for HBO in Toronto in 1988. And they did it like they do most live sketch comedy pilots or stand-up specials where you you tape the, the same show twice so you can pick the best of each show. And their first show went really badly. Oof. And like so badly, like everyone knew how, ba- how badly it went. And and the, and I think they said, Bruce McCullough says like, yeah, I think that's the only time that Lorne ever lo- yelled at us. And, yeah. and then they cut to Lorne and he's like, I could have told him it was perfect. <laughs> But I would have been lying. Yeah. So I want to see the footage of that show. Like that would be, (laughs) I would love to watch on Amazon Prime. 100%, 100%. And you know that footage is somewhere out there, but. I want to see that bomb. But, but I mean, then they rallied and then they, they they said, you know, that they got their kind of their punk sensibility up and they, some of them trashed their dressing rooms and. Uh, Scott and Bruce, I think, peed in the sink, and then they they were like, "I'll show you." And then they did a really strong second show. So, Have you guys ever done that, by the way? Peed in the sink? Mm. Um, um, no. Well, on like at a show <laughs> ever. Uh, I peed in the sink at one time in my life, but I don't think I've done it outside my twenties. Yeah, okay. I, I I didn't get into comedy until I was in my 30s. So I was a little past my sink peeing years, I think. I'm pretty so. sure I didn't pee in a sink, but I, I yeah. can't, I can neither confirm nor deny the, a lot of drinking, yeah. a lot of drinking. I think I've done it once. Yeah. It was oh. exhilarating. I mean, it makes sense. Way. It's higher up. <laughs> it saves water. Um, yeah. You have to do, a green of, you have to do a thorough cleaning afterwards. There's some like uh, like biological caveman thing about peeing in a sink that yeah pro- probably is uh, c- there's some comedy to be mined there yeah 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 probably marking your territory marking your territory that's my sink now yes exactly <laughs> this is my sink exactly exactly so um, another thing I found interesting was that for all their show tapings they would have the the band that played their theme music shadowy men from a shadowy on a shadowy planet they played live at every taping and i thought that's so cool because that that had to create a real cool energy and vibe yeah i could listen to that theme song all the damn day can we yeah let's talk about this theme the theme song uh for those who don't know it's called having an average weekend by shadowy Mm -hmm. men on a shadowy planet and i'm here to say it's probably one of the best, if not the best, theme songs on like a on a TV of a TV show. It's it's just it's so catchy, and you I have literally never gotten sick of that song. It's just it's such a yeah, it's such a fun, catchy, boppy song. Um, like as soon as I hear the bass line, a smile's already on my face. Yeah. I'm ready. Like, yeah. Damn, that's. Song slaps, and it it gets it gets you pumped for the show, man. It really does. It really does. So, Uh, does SNL need a theme song? Is this a big fault that we don't have an SNL theme song every single week? 
Well, no, mm. SNL has a theme song. It's just not on the same league as the Kids in the Hall theme song. I mean, you you hear new arrangements of the, you know, bop, 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 but it, yeah, it's just not as catchy. Like, I guess they do have a theme song in theory, so I apologize to all the music yeah. buffs out there. But the uh, <laughs> but I sort of mean, like, do we need a live band singing a song as the well, cast? I, I, again, John, SNL has a live band. <laughs> well, do you not I know, know this, G.E. Smith? <laughs> yes, yes. Apologies to the band of SNL. That, does the name of the ticket ring a bell? I know that they have a band. What, you know what I'm trying okay. to say? I'm saying, what is, what if, if SNL, if you had to pick a modern, popular song, maybe not popular, maybe off-brand, whatever it is, if you had to pick a song, yeah. another song to be the SNL theme song, do you have any oh. ideas? Oh, Lord, that's such a huge question. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I'm... You... Yeah, I don't know if you could. I mean, it's because yeah. the show changes so much throughout the years. That like yeah. the like to to choose one song that would like fit the vibe of all the changes the, sh- the show goes through would be kind of difficult. Like one all yeah. encapsulating song that would like set the tone of the show. It would. I don't I mean, know, the, the, the show. That's a very interesting question. I don't think I'm a good person to ask uh, answer it because one, I don't follow pop music nearly enough to give an intelligent answer on that anymore. Mm-hmm. And two, it's just SNL has been around for 47 going into 48 seasons. Now the show is what it is. You know, th- they've got the formula and they're sticking to the formula. The formula always obviously works for them. So you don't want to monkey with that too much. I think. Do you yeah. have a song in mind, John? Uh, I was, I was sort of thinking, uh, working for the weekend by lover boy. The perfect theme song for SNL. See, I would get sick of that. I would get, I would, it would be a fun novelty for like three weeks. And then after a month, I think I would be like, okay, I don't, I don't really need to hear Loverboy again. <laughs> okay, but we need somebody out there in the SNL community who's listening to this to take the existing SNL cast interstitials for the, and put it to Working for the Weekend by Loverboy and post it on social media and just see how, what Trumbull thinks of it. Make, yeah, make, no, I'll do that. I'll watch it and I'll see. I mean, look, hey, I love, I love a good mashup. Mm-hmm. I love, like, you give me, you give me that video where it's uh, the the opening credits of Star Trek: The Next Generation to the theme song of Dallas. I am fucking there. Um, original mm-hmm. Star Trek uh, cut together to the theme song to the A Team. I am there. I will watch that every few months. Um, Right. SNL. I I don't think I've watched any SNL theme mashups. I would I would be interested in checking that out. Yeah, I'd like to see like everybody's working for the <laughs> weekend. Eighty Bryant. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody wants a new romance. I, I mean, it's, it's tough because that song not has there. lyrics. <laughs> I mean, work, working for the weekend has lyrics, so you have to fit in the names around the lyrics. I mean, you need you need a cool kick-ass instrumental like the kids in the hall had. Mm. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, you're probably right. Fair I'm enough. just having some fun. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Um, um, yeah, the other yeah. thing I didn't realize from this doc, canceled at the end of the first season. That was a surprise to me, too. I hadn't. Yeah. I really had no idea. So, yeah. So, um, at this point, they made their pilot. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. HBO HBO picked it up and bought it. They, they asked for 22 right. episodes, which was unheard of. And like 20 I, episodes. Oh, right. Uh, One of them misremembered. Oh, right. Yeah. And I wrote, I wrote yeah. it down as 22. Great. Yeah, yeah, Lauren's like, I yeah. believe it was 20. Yeah. <laughs> it was 20. It was 20. Yeah. 
I also liked how... The- I mean, it, it was more than they were expecting. They were expecting like 10 episodes, maybe 15, and then they get an order for 20. So they're just like, oh my God. And they, they had everything riding on that pilot. It was just, uh, it was, this show gets picked up or we go back to waiting tables and struggling. Yeah. I also so, like how they put in um, this interview from Mike Myers, where Mike Myers saw the pilot and he was like both proud of them and really mad and upset. Because like, mm-hmm. damn it, you did it. You fucking did it. You made, yeah. them, you made this amazing pilot. Damn it. <laughs> like, yeah. it was, I don't know, something about that uh, tickled No, I, I totally relate to that feeling. I mean, <laughs> there's, you're proud of your friends, but at the same time, yeah, there is that, that little envious part of you that's just like, oh, why, why didn't yeah. that happen for me? Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, Mike, I mean, Mike Myers said there was a near perfect pilot. Like, that's. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's like you said, it, it, it got on uh, HBO, uh, first season, uh, well-received, mm-hmm. good reviews, canceled. Yeah. And, and I think they said it was because of like, you know, money issues or economic, because like, I, I think at the well, time. Well, I mean, Lauren, Lauren explained that, yeah, it's not because it was a creative failure or anything like that. It was just the economics. So I guess the show just wasn't profitable enough. Not, yeah. enough, uh, not enough eyeballs tuned in. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and that is... That is where the documentary ended. <laughs> okay, yes. Um, so this is the end of the first part of the documentary. And John, you were telling us be- before we started recording, you thought this was the actual end of the documentary. It's so weird. Okay, well, Amazon Prime, what the hell were you thinking? Like, why would you not put this in, this, in the same thing? Like, Netflix would never do this. Like who? Who mm. is this for to separate this into two parts? It didn't. You didn't get a little window at the at the bottom of the screen saying like the second episode. Yeah, I, got, I got the window, but I thought it was for the episodes to watch the sketches, like to season six of Kids in the Hall. So I thought, or the, the new season of Kids in the Hall. So I was like, okay, I was like, whatever. Like we're not talking about the sketches, yeah. So you watched this and you thought the Kids in the Hall was just a one season television show, and they never did anything since then. No, no, no. To clarify for yeah. all the listeners, and by the way, I did watch the second half, but to clarify, <laughs> I I just, I knew that the Kids in the Hall continued. I just thought that the documentary was talking about, I was like, uh, oh, okay, I guess they're trying to make a point that they were almost canceled. Yeah. <laughs> Schneider thought it ended on like a downer, like Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. That's, uh, I was like, oh, okay. They never defeat the Empire. Luke never finds out if Darth Vader's actually his father. <laughs> it's like, it's- wow. All right. It's a bold choice. Will, will Han and Leia get together? We don't know. There's no way to tell. <laughs> yeah, definitely a that. huge cliffhanger. I love that so much. Uh, but yeah, no, so... <laughs> so Darren let you know there was an actual second part to this documentary. And yeah, then so Darren sends it. me a text and Darren's like, hey, uh, so Trumbling's a few more minutes just to finish the second uh, part of the the documentary. I was like, okay, but it was only 45 minutes. I was like, geez. Uh, um, okay. Uh, but yes, I did watch it and wow, was I impressed because uh, they did a lot of really cool things in the second half. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, basically, it, what it sounds like basically saved the show was Mark McKinney ends up winning Best Actor at the Cable Ace Awards for the first season. And he beats out Gary Shandling, who I guess in this would have been like 1989, 1990. So he, w- he would have been doing a It's Gary Shandling show at that point. Was it, was it right. that or Larry Sanders? I don't think Larry Sanders had started yet. I think Larry Sanders started like 92-ish, but I can look that up real fast. Okay. 
Well, no, because I mean, I it's have... cable, cable Ace. I thought like Gary, it's Gary Shanley show was on Channel Five or Fox. So Larry, Larry Sanders. Larry Sanders show started in 1992. So oh, yeah, right. I don't think it. I don't think it started quite yet. All right, I stand corrected. Can I permission to rant about Mark McKinney for a second? Rant Let's away, sir. I love Mark McKinney so much. Uh, he to me is such an underrated SNL cast member. He didn't have a long mm-hmm. career on the show, but. Wow, no. was he fantastic by the time he got onto SNL in the mid-90s. And uh, he, he only I, stayed for like a season in the mid-90s, right? I think he I think he was on for two and a half seasons. So he actually was okay. one of the crossovers between that famous 94-95 almost cancel SNL dead season. Oh and, yeah, yeah, yeah. He came in at the very tail end of the Adam Sandler, David Spade, Chris Farley era, right? Exactly. And then they held him over with, you know, Tim Meadows and Spade um, and Norm, and they all crossed over into the Will Ferrell Hammond uh, era. But the um, and and also Molly Shannon came in at the end there, too. Um, But yeah, I mean, uh, I am such a fan of Mark McKinney, like throughout his entire career. Uh, I think, John, you said as well that like Mark really speaks to you. Just his character work in the Kids in the Hall sketches. Uh, so fantastic. Um, I don't think that he fully clicked on SNL in its totality. Like, I think he could have had a very long career as an SNL cast member and been like really one of the greats. But he has mm-hmm. moments, especially in season 21 with David Koechner. He has a couple things that are really, really yeah. great. Um, and I just think throughout his whole career, like, uh, I don't know if you guys ever watched Superstore uh, on NBC. Uh, over mm-hmm. the last uh, many years, but he was oh, yeah. so good in that show. Like, he, I, I, he's fantastic. The the character work that he did on Superstore, the the voice that he had for his character, where where it's just this weird high pitched sort of, and I'm not doing it justice. But the first time I saw Superstore, I was just that is such a brave choice to do it on a to do that on a sitcom that runs every week. That's ooh, wow, yeah, yeah. It's and it's honestly, I think he is one of the main reasons that Superstore is like one of the only modern, successful NBC comedies. I'd say, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Like I, I remember, like in preparation for this uh, podcast where we're recording now, like I went back and listened to some of the Kids in the Hall interviews on Mark Maron's podcast, and I listened to the mm-hmm. one where um, Mark had uh, Kevin McDonald on, and like I like that one because like, Kevin McDonald kind of breaks down which each one of the kids does, like their strengths. He says, yeah, like, Dave is the one that comes up with the best jokes. Uh, Bruce is the best writer. And he said, yeah, Mark is the best actor out of all of us. Like, And, like, right. I would, so I would agree with that. Yeah, like, he's – Mark McKinney, like, I don't know if he gets his uh, just due as far as a comedic actor is concerned, but he's very strong. Like, it, it, it definitely well, – like, uh, like, I dub, like, it, like I, um, I saw more of it when I watched the new – uh, season of Kids in the Hall that just came out uh, a few weeks ago, where there was like a bunch of sketches uh-huh. in there, like that Mark is heading up. Where I was like, hey, he's really good in this. This is a really well. Fun I think sketch. they're they're now at a point in the group. They are all they all seem very hyper aware, and they're they're fine with their niche within the group. And Mark McKenney, he said, like, yeah, I'm I'm the actor. I didn't, and I'm not as ambitious as some of the other folks in the group. So I think he's perfectly fine being just a supporting actor in a project, like the way he, he is or was in Superstore. Mm. I think, I think he's cool with that. And I think there's something really admirable about it. He, he, he knows his lane or he's, or he knows at what level he's comfortable at. He's not like, I need to be the star of my own sitcom. I'm not going to be like, you yeah. know, I, my character needs a spinoff. 
He's yeah. not going to be that guy. He's he's not trying to be like Kevin Hart or something. Exactly, exactly. I was going to say McLean Stevenson, but Kevin Hart, much more current <laughs> reference. McLean Stevenson. But you know what else I find fascinating, just to think about one last thing on Mark McKinney, which is, you know, if you were to ask about uh, any younger person who kind of knows about previous eras of SNL, but, you know, knows the, the big names, right? They know the Eddie Murphys, mm-hmm. the Will Ferrells, uh, and that type of stuff. But uh, it just, you know, Mark McKinney, the chances of him ever being brought up would be so limited. Yeah. But I, I, like I said, I just think one of the most underrated SNL cast members of all time. Because, I mean, I think also part of that is because he is, he's more associated outside the show than with the show. He didn't make his name on SNL. He's he's one of those people, a little like Michael McKean, where it's like he became famous and then he became an SNL cast member. Right. So, so it's you're like just almost like... like a- it's like oh a Julia yeah, Dreyfus situation, right? Where it's like Julia yes. was in the opposite way, where she became way famous after the show, but right, but really she didn't break until after the show. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so interesting to think about that comparison. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Mark McKinney wins this Cable Ace Award, the Best Actor, and then he, so Lauren Michaels, chess master that he is, he's able to leverage that into a season two of the show on HBO. And that that is amazing that he he was able to leverage that critical acclaim into another season of a canceled TV show. And then and and Dave Foley just very dryly says, like, well, to do those 20 episodes, it that took us 13 months. And if you look at a calendar, you'll realize that those are more months than occur in a year. (laughs) So we realized we had to produce the next season faster. And so they decided to bring in outside writers. And I just. Again, that was so wonderfully Canadian. I loved it. Yeah, because I think um, they even talk about it in the doc where like, their main focus was not to sort of, I guess, uh, you know, compromise their credibility. Like street cred was very important to them. Being able to be mm-hmm. authentic above all was everything. So I guess they felt like they had to write everything because of that. But if you do that, yeah. then it takes longer for the episodes to come out. So they had to like sort of yeah. put that aside a little bit and take on outside writers. So they... Like they had outside writers to help them with the sketches and come out, fix, you know, with the episodes faster. But at the same time, they still want to maintain their integrity. And uh, yeah, and and again, it's it's that sort of punk ethos that that do-it-yourself sort of thing. But that's also like a big recipe to just burn yourself out totally if you're trying to write and perform all that material. And I don't think they were directing themselves at that point. I mean, at least they had the sense not to do that. But wow. Right. Yeah. And then, of course, then they go into all the other sketches that they went through in the second season, like uh, the creation of Mm -hmm. Buddy Cole. uh, Scott Thompson's iconic Buddy Cole character. Uh, I still can't believe they they showed that one sketch, which I vaguely remember growing up, where it involved like Hitler having sex with a donkey. Right. That was was so they, they have. They have the best network note ever. It's Hitler can fuck the donkey, but the donkey has to be alive. <laughs> it, it's just it's so weird, <laughs> but I love it. Which, which they know that made the sketch worse because <laughs> now the donkey has to be a kid's pet. And yeah. And um, I mean, my God, <laughs> I did not remember that sketch. I might have missed that episode at the time. But, I think it was that. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't forget it. That visual of Bruce McCullough yeah. as Hitler and like 
him like thrusting and all, you don't see a dunk. It, but you well, see it's, it's just a close up of him, but he is obviously the the body motions. There is no mistaking what the man is doing. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you just see like a donkey's tail going back and forth in front of his face. I was like, right. Jesus Christ. What is it's this? very skillfully shot, but it's all through implication. You, I mean, you just look at it and you're like, yep, Hitler's fucking that donkey. Uh, <laughs> but you are not technically seeing Hitler fuck, uh, fucking a donkey. It is just Hitler's head popping around. I mean, how, would you, I love, how would you see that, though? Uh, well, I mean, I'll, I'll send you some links uh, later you on. Need porn Michaels. <laughs> uh, you need porn Michaels, obviously. That's a job for porn Michaels. Um <laughs> Another thing I loved was, you know, like like a lot of documentaries, there's talking heads in this. But I, I loved that as they're talking to each of the five kids individually, they're sort of directing the doc while they're in it. <laughs> you know, he's like, I don't quite remember that. Cut to Kevin saying this. And, and then they, they and at one point somebody says, like, I don't remember what the, exactly the line was. You'll you'll do the research. You'll find it. And they're all just sort of directing it as they're in it and i felt i found that very endearing it's a good i did like that too i thought it was good yeah 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 yeah. so yeah so then they also talk about other uh you know other sketches and prominent um you know uh, recurring reoccurring characters uh you know of course the head crusher which uh, to this day people love the head crusher. i'm crushing your heads Yeah, yeah that's just such a simple great stupid gag it's it's so stupid it's smart yeah <laughs> yeah uh chicken lady yeah. uh you know the the women the office women the Cathy's. there's like uh like there's they're getting momentum and like and as the seasons go on i think they even mentioned season four they were becoming more and more ambitious like they were like a lot of the episodes were like becoming mini movies and they were showing influencers yeah. they had like cronenberg and David Lynchian camera shots and right and everything yeah, and the Cohen like, brothers and yeah yeah I, I and, and they, they also talk about how they're they're all sort of individually doing their own things and they're so they're they're by this point I think it's around season four if I remember correctly they're all following their individual muses a little bit more and and, and at one point Dave Foley is like yeah I don't know why we did that sketch that it it was it was it wasn't funny it had no jokes in it and it was two days of production time but this is the love uh, and sausages film yeah yeah, yeah. right it, and which... uh, very very bizarre but i guess this was what bruce wanted to do and i think like right it sort of compare i sort of compare it to like a boy band that um i guess like you could use like nsync as an example or something like that where it's like when he gets mm-hmm. so popular everybody just wants to go off on their own and then think they can make it and, right the dynamics and I have seen so many documentaries about different music groups and stuff who just can't uh, can't stay together because the egos just get bigger and bigger as they get more and more popular. Right. I yeah. mean, again, McLean Stevenson. Uh, <laughs> hello, Larry. Google it, people. Um, you kids know McLean Stevenson, right? Yeah. No. Kids love the McLean Stevenson references. <laughs> McLean Stevenson, well remembered yeah. by the by the kids of 2022. Definitely. Yeah. They got the lunchboxes and everything. They got it. Yeah. I mean, they, they all wear their Henry Blake Fisherman's hat with the lures on it. And the, the, the McLean Stevenson conventions, they're doing the <laughs> McLean Stevenson trading cards. It's, it's a whole thing. It's all they're talking about on the interwebs. McLean, McLean, McLean. That's all I hear about. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So then we get to season five where um, at this point, 
we can tell the kids are getting burnt out on doing the show. Uh, yeah. Everybody's kind of got, like you said, everybody's going off in their own different directions. Bruce wants to direct more. Scott, yeah, Bruce, Bruce is like, I will not come back unless I get to direct. So. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Scott wants like his own half hour. There's like more and more infighting, and it seems like everybody's okay with the fifth season being the last season, except for Mark. Apparently, Mark was the only one that was like, no, we can still do this. And everybody else. Yeah. Was, Annabelle was like, no, we no, we're, we can't. We can't because, this. again, I think Mark was just perfectly happy with the level he was at. He was like, yeah, I can just keep playing weird characters and sketches. And and I guess he wasn't having any particular friction with anybody. Uh, so, yeah, he was he was cool. He's a tough guy to read, but I, I just I like his vibe, man. <laughs> I think he's brilliant. Yeah, I dig him. I dig him. He's brilliant. Um, yeah, so... Uh, and, and then... What's that? Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, in 1994, we got the final episode, the finale. And this one, I remember... I do remember this one, because I remember, like, the at the end of the very... The last sketch where all the kids are in the office setting, and they're all dressed up as, you know, the Cathy's, and they're all dressed up as women. And at the very yeah. end, they, like, take off their wigs to sort of break the yeah. fourth wall a little bit. Like, that one really stuck with me. The, the main thing I remember is them all getting buried in a mass grave at the end. And you, there were close-ups of each of them with dirt getting shoveled on their faces. I didn't remember them, like, taking hits of a joint during that. Maybe they, I guess they edited that out of the Comedy Central reruns or something. But maybe. Yeah. That's possible. I did not remember that part at all. But, yeah, that, I remember that, too, them getting buried alive. And even back then, I was thinking, yeah. oh, this, this, is, uh, this is macabre. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, it's it's dark. It's dark. Um, so, and, th- and then they talk about, yeah, they, they're done with the show, and they, they were saying there wasn't really any sort of model of what a comedy troupe should do after their show ends outside of Monty Python, which was you do a movie every three years. And then, then they're showing, they're panning across all these Monty Python movies, as Holy Grail, Life of Brian, Meaning of Life. And... So it was like, oh, well, uh, of course that's what we're going to do. And then the the infighting gets even worse because Dave Foley, it, it's now the mid-90s and Dave Foley accepts an offer to be in the pilot for news radio. And some of the other people in the group are like, no, you shouldn't do that. You should come do this thing with this group. And, and Dave Foley is like, what are you insane? No, this is a network pilot. Of course I am going to do it. I have to do it for, because I have a wife and a child. Yeah. Uh, this is by wife. far the most interesting part of the documentary, by the way. Yeah. Just watching yeah. this whole thing. I think there should be a documentary. I Maybe there is, but there should be a documentary about this particular making of brain candy because for yeah. me, the behind the scenes and the awkward interactions that you got to just see a small glimpse a small glimpse into the uh, day-to-day of what they were doing to make this movie. To me, mm-hmm. that was utterly fascinating. And they, they also talk about how it was a bad time for literally everyone in the group. Uh, Scott Thompson's brother uh, passed away. I think they said his brother committed suicide. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Uh, so he's like, you know, so I was massively depressed and, you know, probably PTSD and, and all that. Uh, Kevin McDonald was going through a divorce. So, and, and Dave Foley, I'm sure it felt like to the other group members that uh, he'd be basically abandoned the group and for an easy paycheck on news radio. 
Yeah, because I, th- then, I think at this point, yes, yeah, like you said, like um, everybody was adamant he shouldn't. He, I think uh, Dave says like, yeah, Kevin in particular was adamant saying, no, you should not do that TV show. You should stick with and do the movie. But right. like you said, Dave had, I mean, Dave has a pregnant wife and a kid. He, he needs money. So, yeah. and so then once the other kids were writing the, 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 the movie, Kevin sort of found himself agreeing more and more with Mark and Bruce. And that, that's, mm-hmm. he's, he even said, yeah, that's the thing that, that's the thing that kind of caused the rift. That was like the beginning of the dynamic right. changing. And then of yeah. course, I'm oh, sorry. I was going to say, and Mark was completely diplomatic throughout the whole thing. Yes, because he's yeah. he's a yeah. diplomat's son. Mark is pro. Yeah, he was a diplomat's son. He he. It seems like he's the guy in the group that, at at any point in time, everybody still likes. And I feel like if you have any sort of comedy group, there there is always that one person. And in Monty Python, it was Michael Palin. And uh, when I was in an improv troupe for five years. There was that guy. It was it was not me. It was somebody else in the group that. But it seemed like, no matter who else might have been fighting, we all liked that one person. Well, <laughs> so, who were you? Were you the uh, were you the Dave of that group? Like, did you want to go off on um, your own? I guess I would be the Dave because I ended up leaving the group, uh, <laughs> and and the group kept on going after I left. I was I I reached a point in that improv group where I was like I I'm just fighting with this other person too much and it's just sucking all the fun out for me. So I'm, I'm going to leave. Wow. I was like the, the one, the one thing I can do to change this dynamic is just remove myself from this dynamic because. Darren, you got to watch yourself. Uh, yeah. Trouble can get I, up and walk away at any moment. Apparently. I'm temperamental. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I'm temperamental. That's what I'm saying. Oh boy. Wow. All right. <laughs> but, but I mean, I had no idea that the other members of the group had to sue Dave Foley to get him to be in the movie. Dave Foley says, like, I only signed the contract to do the movie so that everyone would get paid to do the movie because we didn't think the movie was going to happen. And then Lorne Michaels makes the movie happen somehow. And now he is contractually obligated to do the movie. And then they they sue him. And the interviewer was like, well, that was that must have felt like a betrayal. And Dave Foley just very dryly says, well, I don't think it felt like a betrayal so much as it was one. (laughs) I I laughed hysterically at that line. It's just, it's so wonderfully dry and it just hints at this ocean of trauma underneath. I just, wow. Yeah, like it's, I mean, it's it's something you shouldn't laugh at, but damn it, Dave Foley finds a way to make you laugh at it. But um, you have to. I mean, look, Dave Foley has been through so much shit. Yeah, like folks, I mean, listen to his uh, Mark Maron podcast. It is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, Dave, I mean, look, he, he Dave Foley, he went through all this shit with Kids in the Hall. He was on news radio and, you know, news radio limped along for another season after Phil Hartman's wife killed him and then committed suicide. That's a huge trauma. Jeez. And then Dave Foley goes through this very contentious divorce. And then he, he has to, and I believe the alimony was set for, for his, from his news radio salary. So he ended up having to, he owed like is some outrageous number, like 170% of his monthly income in child support, just like, impossible to ever pay so it was rough oh my god yeah and the fact that the man has survived all that it's um 
yeah. So I have great admiration for Dave Foley for just yeah. surviving and getting through all that shit. Yeah. And uh, after all that, the film bombs when it comes out. It was a yeah. complete another film. I remember watching this on like VHS, maybe like a year or two after it came out. I remember liking it okay. But yeah, I, I do. I have never actually seen Brain Candy. I've only seen clips mm. of it. And I'm surprised. Again, I I think that this would, if you would have asked me before having this discussion today, have the two of you covered Brain Candy on the SNL Nerds, I would have say 150. percent Wow. We probably should. Yes. Um, I don't Brain know. Brain Candy. My main memory of Brain Candy is my friend Frank, who was again a much bigger Kids in the Hall fan than me. He went to see it, and I actually looked up on his old uh, Facebook page. He watched it on the day it premiered in like an empty or a near empty theater, and he was like the only person in the audience. Yikes! And he would he would talk up Brain Candy to me. I think they did later. They did a, di- a different cut of Brain Candy to like improve it, but. It was it was a product it was a troubled production. So yeah, it seems like uh, I mean they do say that yeah we never let our you know behind the scenes problems affect the work. Like once we were on camera, yeah. it was okay. But behind the scenes, yeah, the kids were just not happy together. Yeah. They weren't happy with each other, and it, the whole thing was just a, a slog yeah. to get through. And the fact and, that like the critics didn't like it, like I like they also right. included in the stock. Uh, a scathing review from Roger Ebert, where he he, he goes yeah. in on it. That just well, when Roger Ebert hated something, he hated something. It was it was beautiful how much he hated the stuff he hated. Mm-hmm. I mean, because he could explain in great detail why and how and and the many ways he hated something. It, it, there's an entire collection of his negative reviews because his negative reviews were so good. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, Scott Thompson talks about how like. I was literally not talking to Dave Foley. We, I would not talk to him outside of work. We would, we would do a scene together, and the scene would be great. But then, the scene would be that yell cut, and we'd just go right back to not talking to each other. So, and I, I understand Dave Foley's like barely in the movie. I think he basically just has a cameo appearance in it. I think partly because nobody really wanted to work with him. Damn. That yeah. is... and also because he was so busy with News Radio at the time. Right. Shit. That's uh, that is a bummer yeah i i, I kind of want to yeah. try to see brain candy again just to see if i remember if it's as good as i remember it but like it's kind of hard to find too i don't think it's streaming anywhere yeah. I, I know it's on dvd and stuff like that here and there but it's a little hard to track down it's a i know it's a big cult movie in that i mean it is pretty obscure at this point but the people who love it really 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 love it and and i know frank was one of those people um okay I've never, I've never watched it, but okay. so I can't say. Right. I mean, John, you've you've seen it. You, what do you think of it? Uh, I have not seen it actually. No, I haven't. Uh, okay. I would like to though. So uh, maybe this yeah. will be a sequel. We'll talk about it one day. Ooh. Yeah, maybe we'll do we'll do that. And yeah, because we have to have a certain percentage of Canadian content. Uh, yes. No, uh, <laughs> we we would have you back on for that. Canada. So. <laughs> Canada. Canadia content, which is how the McKenzie brothers happen. <laughs> um, uh, so, yes, at this point, the kids in the hall pretty much offic- officially break up. Um, yeah. Cut to 1998, where uh, Comedy Central reruns kids in the hall and have, you know, kids in the hall marathons. And this I remember specifically. Yeah. Comedy Central just rerun episodes of kids in the hall just nonstop. And, uh, through that, yeah. you get a whole new fan base of people who didn't know about them uh, pre- in previous years. 
This is where I learned. Yeah, about and that's it, by the way when I was. That's kind of when I was watching the show. Yeah, yeah, I had the same experience. Like, um, I think I'm around the same age as Jay Baruchel, who was uh, one of the talking mm-hmm. heads. Uh, same yes. thing as Mia. Whenever I would go to the states to stay with my cousins and stuff, and they'd have Comedy Central on, this would be uh, something that I would catch all the time. We'd be like, "What is this crazy show?" Without even realizing that it was Canadian based. And then, obviously, mm-hmm. as I got older, uh, learned to appreciate it more. But yeah, I think this change. This was a a game changer for the next generation to really understand kids in the hall. Same way that a lot of people, you know, grew up on SNL from comedy central. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, and that was, that was a great thing. It was, you could familiarize yourself with the history of those shows with comedy central. I don't, I don't watch comedy central nearly like I used to, but uh, they do not have comedy central in, in your home country of, of Canada, John. (laughs) <laughs> uh, they have a, a they have like a version of Comedy Central, which uh, is uh, oh well, screw that. Right. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, exactly. I mean, they had a lot of the same things. Like a lot of the TV stations would be like um, mm-hmm. would be exactly the same name. Like it would be like uh, Cartoon Network Canada or something like that. You know, where it was like, uh, right. Yeah. So I think it was because they probably had to show a certain percentage, like you said, all jokes aside, of Canadian content. So they couldn't literally copy over the station for station unless it was ABC, NBC, CBS, and then later Fox. Right. Mm. Well, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, because, well, American culture, we, we just inundate the freaking world anyway. So Yeah, we do. America! <laughs> I mean, I, I remember back in college, I spent a semester in England, and I was very surprised by how much american content was being shown over there and and not just like the really good stuff not like the cream of the crop i mean that i i was when i was in england they were i think they were just just getting or just about to get married with children and i was like really we're showing that over here that there's not any sort of quality content <laughs> no <Well, laughs> Yeah, I, I have a very interesting experience, which I guess I don't really get to talk about too much on the podcast. But basically, like growing up in Montreal, it's a uh, mixed uh, language province mm-hmm. up in Canada. So the French culture here, there's a there's a lot of like tension between French culture and English culture, which is right. why a lot of my family ended up moving down to the States in the 70s was because Quebec almost separated from Canada. So oh, uh, wow. for me, like a lot of people always asked. Um, how I became so Americanized or so Anglophone in a province where I was taught French in schools. Um, but I would say that uh, because of TV and radio um, showing so much American content um, that m- myself and my community of people that I knew, friends and family and stuff, like we basically spoke English most of the time and we spoke we witnessed american culture and content so for me this this is something that really just show is a great example of showing how much american culture and these uh tv stations like comedy central snl uh kids in the hall at the time like really just can permeate all these different countries and cultures yeah yeah Mm. absolutely i mean how how does it feel when america is almost we're 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 kind of like stealing your Canadian content and it's like, you're not like somehow it's like, you don't really make it big until you make it in America. Do you resent us because of that or? Um, not really though. Uh, you know, I sort of, I think that like there's a lot of Canadians definitely don't even want to like touch anything American politics wise. Cause it's just so different. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's a lot of different aspects of stuff like that, but when it comes to culture, um, I don't really feel that way. I mean, I think that there's, 
uh, except during COVID, it's so easy for Canadians to get into the United States that I think that when a popular mm -hmm. musician ends up going out to New York or LA and they end up making it big or, uh, you know, groups like Kids in the Hall end up going over to New York and uh, doing a lot of great work there. Um, it sort of just feels like it's just like a rite of passage. Um, you know, Lauren Michaels obviously is Canadian and, uh, mm. you know, is running one of the biggest and longest uh, running American institutions that there is. Um, I think it's very cool. I just, I, I sort of just wish, um, uh, maybe this is like a pipe dream, but I just wish there was more collaboration between uh, Canadians and Americans in terms of pop culture in a way um, that well, it wasn't like, oh, now that we're in, now that somebody's in New York, it's like, now we're American, now they own you. Like it could be just be, you know, like, mm -hmm. like I, I sort of, uh, even on the SNL network, we have so many American podcasters, Canadian podcasters, people around the world. Like I think that comedy is a great way to bring people together despite their geographic location or demographics or anything like that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. This, is, this, by the way, this is as far as the American Canadian uh, collaboration is going to go. This, <laughs> right. this episode of this podcast. We're, do, we're doing it, people. We're, we're yeah. done after this. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah. So at this point, um, it's 1988. Uh, kids in the hall are finding their. Like Did you new, say 88 or 98? Not, I meant to say 98 if I said 88. Sorry. Okay. 1998. The kids at the hall are regrowing their fan base. There are chat rooms being born. Uh, yes. cut, cut to 99. The kids start to talk again, one another to each other. Like Dave says, yeah, I, I yeah. reached out to Kevin. And then we started kind of rebuilding our friendship. Then we reached out to Scott. Yeah. And like they're, they're starting to you know, become friends again and talk. Uh, then the, that starts them to want to do shows again. And before you know it, they're doing it's 2000 and they're doing sold out shows. And like, so all this, yeah. this whole new fan base that grew from uh, Comedy Central re reruns are re finding them and coming out to shows. I think at one point, Kevin even says, Yeah, what with the like uh, on Comedy Central, you're right behind reruns of Saturday Night Live. It's like reruns of Saturday Night Live number one, reruns of Kids in the Hall number two. And he was right, they were the second highest rated show on, on Comedy Central. That's and and that's cool when it's not even a current show, um, yeah. Food. And and I also I think it's so cool that they kind of figured it out, where they they figured out no we don't we don't have to do movies the way Monty Python did. Uh, we're we're best as like a live show, and they they leaned into that and they started doing all these tours. I didn't realize they'd done so many tours. Yeah, I remember them uh, doing a good number of tours when they were when they were touring. Like I don't think I ever right. I I remember the the reunion tour, and they they had a uh, documentary about that called uh, "Same Guys New Dresses." And oh, I gotta watch that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just remember that title, but I didn't. I I guess I'd kind of forgotten that they they'd done like tours in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and they kind of kept going with this. And I I think that's really cool. It's like they found their niche again. Well, I was doing some research as well about these tours um, on John's favorite website, Wikipedia, and mm -hmm. the uh, I came across this uh, July 2007 tour, the uh, 20th, 25th anniversary of Just for Laughs in Montreal. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking to myself, I was like, did I go to this? Because I used to go to Just for Laughs every single year. And I don't think I mm -hmm. did, but I, I do think my parents actually may, I have to check with them, but I think they actually did go to... The, potentially the kids in the hall reuniting at in 2007 um just because just for laughs here is like such a big thing everybody like you know in the summer goes right. 
down and there's so many uh, SNL related people that are here up and coming stand up comics. Um, you know, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of SNL executives who come here to scout for the new seasons and stuff. So just for laughs is so big. And I think it's really cool that kids in the hall was a part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really cool. And, and yeah, and now they've come back and, now they come back together for this new show. There, there was another project that I don't think I'd ever even heard of called Death Comes to Town. I remember which, this, yeah. Yeah, which they, they were doing literally while Scott Thompson was undergoing treatment for uh, lymphoma. Yeah, I didn't like. I remember this show. I think I think it aired on uh, IFC back when that was a thing. Uh-huh. And, but yeah, okay. I, had no, I had no idea that Scott Thompson was you know, battling cancer while they were shooting yeah. this and they get into that. He, he, he had uh, B cell, non Hodgkin's gastric lymphoma. And he, he did underwent six rounds of chemotherapy and one month of radiation. And now he's cancer free. So yeah, God bless Scott Thompson for being a cancer survivor. Absolutely. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. I mean, um, like, one of the best scenes in this doc that I really liked was how they talk about how he was doing a scene. He was, you know, it was hard for him, of course, as he was going through the treatment. And at one point he was, uh, sort of beginning, he was crying like while, they were mm-hmm. shooting and like uh, Bruce McCullough talks about it where he says he goes over to comfort him and says, you know, it, you'll be, it'll be all right. You're not going to die because I think at this point yeah. Scott was worried about, you know, he, death was a real probable thing. Like he, he could have died, yeah. but like yeah. he thought this was going to be the last thing that he ever did. Right. And I like how Bruce comforts him and says, you're not going to die. Like, you know, cause you know, you know who's gonna die? Dave's gonna die because his ex-wife is gonna kill him, and Kevin's gonna yeah. Kevin's gonna die because he's gonna he's gonna like you know have a heart attack doing improv, and then I'm gonna die <laughs> working myself to death, and you're gonna be the last one to die. Like something like that. It's just so dark and tender at the same time, and funny. Like I, 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 it sort of reminded me earlier in the film of when um, earlier in the film. They were talking about, I think it was Scott who was talking about the AIDS epidemic um, that was yes. happening. And then they yeah. were saying how uh, one of the things that they did was Scott and Kevin kissed during one of the shows. And it really yeah. like was meaningful to a lot of people because it showed that like this straight guy can kiss this gay guy and people don't have to be worried about these things. And um, it sort of, um, you know, destigmatized the situation. And I feel yeah. like there is some type of relation to what happens later when there actually is a serious medical situation for Scott. And then uh, these guys come together and uh, make it easier on him to go through this process. And and Scott Thompson talking about how, yeah, there were there were a lot of sketches about death and AIDS during the, t- the television show years, because that is like the era when when being HIV positive, that was still a death sentence. Right. And and now, of course, thank God it's not. Um, but he was like, yeah, my my thoughts were comedy, comedy, comedy and don't get AIDS, don't get AIDS, don't get AIDS. And and Mike Myers talks about how they were they were stereotyped as like, oh, yeah, they're that gay sketch comedy group because they had they had <laughs> one gay guy in the group and they and they wore dresses a lot. So they, they were stereotyped as they're that gay comedy group. Yeah, I could see that. I could see somebody being like, "Oh, there's a gay guy in there. Oh, the dress is women. Uh, that's like a gay yeah. thing." I'm like, I'm like, so I'm like yeah. Therefore, part. it is all. I mean, yeah, and and I mean, I think I certainly Scott Thompson is probably the guy in the group that I 
related to least because his his experience was like the least like of my own but yeah i mean it's it's good that he's there and he and it's good that he's doing comedy from his own point of view and talking about his experiences and and he talks about how how trailblazing was just to have a gay person playing a gay character and the joke is not oh they're gay right i think that's I mean, the thing that's about huge. yeah i think that's the thing about his uh buddy cole character like he said like yeah buddy cole mm-hmm. He's like an alpha queer. Like he's never the butt of the right. joke. Like him being gay is never like again, like like when they were, you know, men dressing up as women, the joke was never, oh, it's a man dressed as a woman. That's funny. Like Buddy Cole, mm-hmm. same thing. Is like, oh, he's a man and you know, who's gay and like he may exhibit some of the qualities of a stereotypical gay person, but that's never like they're, they're ne- that's never the butt of the joke. That's never that's not like the joke. Line. Yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's never a punchline. And it and, sort of goes. And, oh, sorry, John. Go ahead. No, oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. You were about to make a big point. I was going to say, yeah, it sort of goes back to just like uh, my overall arching thoughts on the documentary itself, which is really, I took away from from that when I was younger, I would seek out SNL because SNL would have these like major celebrities. It was like, oh my God, like T-Pain is on the show or something, you know, in a digital right. shorts. And that would make such a big deal for me. But then when you watch the documentary about kids in the hall and I could see why as an adult, I appreciate them more because they would do these things that were so brilliant, uh, you know, that as a kid, I don't think it works for you. Like you can understand why it's important that uh, somebody who is gay is going out and performing and doing these things and not playing them stereotypically in a way that you would see on all other forms of sketch comedy or that they would dress in women, not just because it was funny to dress as women, but because there was elements of it that were uh, like fascinating to explore. So mm-hmm. I feel like this is uh, the kids in the hall isn't for everybody, but I think at a certain point, uh, you should go back to it if you haven't and you feel like you're ready for it because I think you can learn a lot from everything that they did. Yeah, yeah. And it was, I mean, it's just also, it's amazing just like the traumas these guys have overcome. Like towards the end of the documentary, they just kind of casually drop in that Scott Thompson was, when he was in elementary school or, or, or whatever you call it up in Canada, he was in a school shooting. Yeah, that was... the kid who sat behind him in class was a school shooter, and this is 1975 in Canada. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That obviously, was obviously, very uh, like uh, a hot button topic in pop culture, uh, pop culture, in in uh, in life. Yeah. You know, now, yeah. Uh, so yeah, the fact that you know I you mean... get to see how uh, much this could affect somebody, and and obviously affected his comedy sense as well on yeah. even the most like benign level. Um, I think that uh, it's a great uh, peek into his psyche. Yeah. And so many like super successful comedians, you, you delve into their backgrounds and they have just like such sad things that have happened to them or, or sad things that they've had to overcome in their lives. And it's like, they had to develop this amazing sense of humor to help overcome that. And I, I really think that that is true. Um, and you know, not that people outside of comedy haven't had their own obstacles to overcome and stuff, but it really is a, a fascinating common denominator, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, overall, just, I guess my overall thoughts on this, uh, documentary as a whole is I, I really dug this doc and I really would yeah. recommend everybody check it out, especially if you're a comedy nerd. I think this is almost kind of like 
you know, required viewing. Like this is actually kind of like watching after watching this doc, I wanted to get more and more into the kids. Like I was watching old kids in the hall sketches. I actually yeah. um, took the uh, authorized biography of the kids in the hall out of the library. Mm -hmm. um, kids in the hall, one dumb guy. It was written by, yeah. written by Paul Myers, the uh, older brother of Mike Myers. This this was actually uh, partially based on that book, from what I understand, this documentary. Yeah, absolutely. Um, written by Paul Myers, forward by Seth Myers, no relation. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, so far I'm really enjoying the doc, and uh, or the book rather. And the doc, I think, is pretty fantastic. I learned a lot. There was like so much I didn't know. And I, I don't know, thumbs up, thumbs way up for me. Yeah. Uh, John, what, what are your final thoughts on the doc? I loved it. Honestly, I feel like it's really cool. Like, um, you know, I, I wish I could uh, have the encyclopedic memory of the kids in the hall sketches in the way that I do SNL to have fully uh, probably appreciated yeah. the documentary in full. But, you know, coming at it from a slight uh, outsider perspective, I think that it's a great um, addition to anybody who loves sketch comedy, whether it's SNL or not, to just take a look at the kids in the hall documentary. If you haven't watched one second of kids in the hall, and I don't know why you would be uh, listening to an hour and 40 minutes of an SNL, of a yeah. SNL podcast if you haven't. But <laughs> just in case you are, maybe you like yeah. three of us. Um, start with this. I mean, I, I don't think it can hurt because I think that, you know, it really gives you a peek into their lives. You can understand them. And I think it's fun to then dive in after this. Um, I think there was one other note that I had, which was like uh, Fred Armisen is one of the talking heads uh, in this yeah. documentary. And he talks about how it really reflected Gen X. And um, I started just, you know, thinking about Fred's career on SNL and I could see so much kids in the hall in Fred. So mm, I think yeah. that it's just like one, it's another aspect that we talk about sometimes about how, uh, which SNL cast members come from second city versus, you know, the groundlings and in how it reflects in their, uh, comedy and their characters on SNL. Uh, I think kids in the hall is an influence to a lot of people who have come since then onto the show. So it's an interesting look at that. Yeah. And I, I love this documentary. I co-sign everything you guys just said. I think even if you are not much of a fan of the kids in the hall, this is still a fascinating watch and it's, it's a fairly quick watch too. It's, I mean, it's just two episodes of like 48 minutes a piece. So it's, it's a, it's a quick watch. You can polish it off in an afternoon and it'll tell you a lot. You didn't know. And, and if you like what you learn there, you can explore a little more. The first season is of Kids in the Hall is also up on Amazon Prime. Uh, the new show's up on Amazon Prime. Is that right, Darren? Yes, sir. Eight episodes. Okay. And the it, new season, right? Not the new show. Yeah. Right. The new season. The new se the last. The new season of Kids in the Hall uh, is up on Amazon. I think it's like eight episodes, about half hour each. Right. You see, there's some celebrity cameos sprinkled throughout. I won't. You know, I won't let you know who's in there, but the, like the episodes are solid. I'll say that it's a lot yeah. of like new premises, new characters, brand new sketches. Um, there's like, they bring in a few of the old um, reoccurring characters from, from back in the day, but it never feels like those characters are there for like nostalgia's sake. Like they did this thing that like, I really appreciate where they bring in the old characters, but then they write, you know, really good materials for them to carry the sketch. A lot of times I think, uh, you know, some shows will just bring in an old character and they think that the nostalgia is enough for them to carry the whole sketch. We're like, hey, it's this person from 
from when from back in the day. Remember him? And then they don't really write anything funny for them. Here, like they bring in the old character, then write uh, a whole sketch around it, which I appreciate. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the writing yeah. is solid. A lot of the sketches are solid. They're edgy as hell. There's a sketch about uh, dropping babies that's hilarious in here, and that's all I'll say. Like it's watch the new season. I I highly recommend it. All right. And is the old show up on Amazon Prime as well? The original show? Yes, you can watch. I believe all five seasons are on Amazon, too. There's definitely like, like, uh, yeah, yeah, I think I believe they're all on Amazon, but I I highly recommend you watch those as well. So you can go on a whole uh, kids in the hall rabbit hole and, and just familiarize yourself with this area of comedy and, you know, yet another area where Lorne Michaels has had his fingers in. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, and uh, that's our episode, guys. Thanks again so much for listening. Schneider, we did it. We did it, Schneider. Yay. I hope Uh, somebody hears this. I'm I'm sure they will. I think... It's delete button. (laughs) No! No, 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 no. We're going to... This is going to go up. This is going to go up. I am 95% certain. I'm knocking on wood Um, right now. John, where can where can people uh, follow you if you like if they liked what they heard from you today and they were like, I like the cut of that John Schneider's jib. Well, uh, if you want to follow me directly or ever communicate with me, I'm at John Schneider 24 on most social platforms. Uh, I'm a nice guy. Reach out. I'm Canadian. So you can come (laughs) to me. Um, And then uh, for everything we're doing at the SNL Network, if you're interested in hearing me talk about SNL and all of the wonderful people that we get to talk about Saturday Night Live with, uh, Darren's been on the show a bunch of times. Trumbull was on the show Mm -hmm. in season 46 as well. Um, I I was on like half a show. (laughs) Yeah, that is true. That, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I guess you are. I lost my connection. Some of the tech problems that we've had. Yes. But uh, yeah, we have some really, really fun people um, from, you know, all around the world, all different ages, all different backgrounds who get on our show and rotate and talk about Saturday Night Live. If you just want to, you know, dip your feet in the water a little bit, uh, check out our hot take shows. Those air immediately after SNL is finished uh, late at night. So you can always watch those the next day if you don't feel like staying up very late. Uh, we have our roundtables every single week where we break down the show in even more detail. And then we also have something new that we did this year, which is really fun. And I can't wait to continue it for season 48, which was our patron feedback shows. We have a great patron community as well, where you can join uh, patreon.com slash the SNL network. And you can come co-host the show with me and answer questions from the SNL community, and it's been really wonderful to meet all those great patrons uh, who came on the show this year. So, uh, you know, nonstop SNL coverage. We're continuing it throughout the summer. We still got our By the Numbers show coming up where we're going to analyze the statistics from SNL season 47. We're going to do retrospectives on Kate McKinnon, Pete Davidson, A.D. Bryant, and Kyle Mooney throughout the next month as we say goodbye to them and their SNL careers. So lots of coverage at the SNL Network. You can find us anywhere on any social platform as well as YouTube and any podcast platform you listen to. Fantastic. My God, that's a lot of stuff. Yeah. I'm, oh, my goodness. I'm, yeah. I'm exhausted after yeah, just hearing I, everything you do. I, my God. I, I, have, I have a Twitter page. <laughs> it's, it's an Instagram that I, that I don't use very much. I, I'm, a, I'm a Trumbull comic on both of those. You can, you can follow me there and if you like. Yeah, why not? And you can follow me, too, at uh, Darren Credible, D-A-R-I-N Credible, Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow us on Twitter at SNL Nerd Show. And as always, you can listen to episodes of uh, this podcast on the Nonproductive Network at Non Productive. We've got a Patreon up. 
you know, throw us some, mm-hmm. uh, throw us a, a bone or two, throw us some money. That would be very, very nice. Throw some bone that you know that helps us keep the show going and helps us have cool guests like John Schneider on to talk about cool uh, comedy sketch shows from Canada. So, can I also just say before we wrap up uh, the John Krasinski yeah. episode? It was pretty good. Not bad. Um, it was it was good. I liked the bullying sketch. That's the one that uh, with that he did with Andrew Dismukes. I remember that one being yeah. pretty funny. The rest of the the show, honestly, kind of a blur at this point because it was more than a year ago. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, pretty funny. Yeah, so we got I it. We did it guys. Yeah, we did it, guys. We did it. Yeah. Oh. And and episode one twenty two of our podcast that wasn't bad either, as I recall. Not too shabby. Okay. All right. So um, we will be back with another episode of the SNL Nerds uh, next week. We're continuing on with our summer format. And since it is the summer, we figured what better time than to uh, tackle uh, another famous movie starring another SNL alum. We're going to do National Lampoon's Vacation starring Mr. Chevy Chase, Mr. Anthony Michael Hall, Mr. Randy Quaid, and even some people who have not been SNL cast members. Ooh, so can't wait. Yeah, you picked the three most problematic. <laughs> Yikes. We, we, we kind of did, didn't we? Wait, wait, wait. Why is Anthony Michael Hall problem, problematic now? I feel like there's some TMZ articles out there about Anthony Michael Hall. Oh, no. Oh, dear. Oh, no. Oh, oh. no. Okay. Um. Uh. <clears throat> Well, All right. Well, you know, maybe somebody will write a Business Insider article about him in another 20 years. Um, oh, boy. So. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> oh. There, there, was a, there was some SNL account the other day that wished Horatio Sands a happy birthday. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, oh, no. Aaron just posted the perfect <laughs> response in gift form. Yeah. Oh no, that's uh, that's a big no no at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, for for the folks who've, who've brought that uh, Business Insider story to our attention, we are aware of it. Um, about uh, stuff that happened during the Horatio Sands era, we we've talked about how to address it. We're not. We're still not really entirely sure how to address it and how to address it in a way that can fit in on the show. We do want to signal boost it, but. I don't know. We're 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 still. I guess we're still processing it. I know that sounds like a cop out, but yeah. I mean, it's the truth. What can we say? Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and and ending out ending out this episode on a high note. I guess we're doing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. See, that was that was one of our concerns. It's like, do we do it at the beginning of the episode? Do we do it at the end of the episode? Well, now we've done it at say, the end of the episode. Can I just it's kind say, of a downer, isn't it, folks? Yeah, Horatio's birthday aside, uh, thank you guys for yeah. having me on the show today. Seriously, all, all jokes. Uh, it's been really wonderful to get to talk to you guys for almost two hours. I know you are uh, you put a lot of work into the shows that you do uh, all season long, so it's great to catch up with both of you, and it's been fun to talk about the kids in the hall. Absolutely. Not, not as much work as you would expect. Uh, <laughs> 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 but, uh, but thank you very much. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm so glad we were finally able to have you on, and I hope this is the first of several times we have you on. For sure. So, okay. So, next week, National Lampoon's Vacation. That is also streaming on Amazon Prime last I checked. So, uh, go watch that and then come back and tell us what you thought of that and why cast members in that are problematic. And we'll we'll have a whole discussion next week. But until then, nerds Nerds out. out!
This has been a non-productive media presentation. Executive producer, Frank Hablaoui. This program and many others like it on the Non-Productive Network is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Please share it, but ask before trying to change it or sell it. For more information, visit non-productive.com. Thank <laughs> you.